Hello, and welcome to the Aseret Podcast, where we learn about character, kindness, wisdom, and values from living examples of inspiring people. In this week's episode, I speak with Rebzael Newman about the third Diber and its demand of us to be ambassadors and carriers of God's name in the world. It was very special and packed with wisdom and insight for all of us. It is hard to summarize Rebzael in a few sentences. He is a very special soul, serving God and the Jewish people with his every breath, both locally in Toronto and with the village shul, as well as globally. Rebzael is president of Bond Street Mercantile, a hedge fund management firm focused on investing in Israel. Outside of this role, he is a rabbi and has been involved in a leadership role with every organization under the sun, such as Aisha Torah, NCSY, Chabad, and JWRP, to name a few. He is also utterly devoted to chesed work, especially with Bikur Cholim, visiting those who are ill. As a lover of music, Reb Zil produced 23 children's albums and nine of Reb Shlomo Karlebach's. But beyond this all, he is down to earth and cares so much about helping others and making a difference. One of his main passions in Jewish education is deepening our connection to prayer. He wrote a book on the subject called Stairway to Heaven, a novice's guide to Jewish prayer. I found our interview deeply inspiring, and I believe it can help guide us towards making the most of our opportunities to be a Kiddush Hashem, to do a little good and bring a little of God's light wherever we may be in the world. Rebzel, thank you so much for coming on. My pleasure. Gitvach and Shavuotov. Typical translation is to not swear falsely by the name of Hashem, your God. What does this deber mean for you? Well, the simple uh, halachic translation is that one should be honest and not swear falsely. That's the literal translation. But I don't think that's the commandment that makes it into the Ten Commandments, but a much bigger and broader understanding. Lo means don't. Tisa means to carry. Et shem Hashem alokecha, the name of God, la shav, shav means to waste. Don't be a carrier of the name of God for no purpose. Don't waste that mission and that opportunity in life. If we're God's children... As the Torah says, Banim Atem Lahashem Alkechem, you are God's children. Not only that, it says, Bini Bachori Yisrael, you're my firstborn child. We have a special mission, a special role, and we're known as God's people. That's written many places. Our job is to carry the name of God, the word of God, the message of God, the morality of God, the love of God, the compassion of God the acceptance of God as the father of the world to the rest of the world. So to waste that opportunity just to sit at home or hide or just be self-focused misses the entire opportunity for which we were created. Oh, how sad that would be. And if we think about the order of, of the Aseris Adibra, so we have, of course, Hashem introducing himself as the redeemer of of the people of Israel from Mitzrayim, and then also saying, we don't have any other gods. So what are we supposed to do with this information? It sounds like we're supposed to carry it some way, somehow. Yes, yeah, so now God says, I'm God, don't have any others, but how are we going to get the message? There was one revelation 3,330 years ago, and after that, he gives it to us, the Jewish people, 
and go carry that to the four corners of the world. And that's where we made it to. We made it to Australia, down there, Russia, up there. We've been in China, been in America. We've been all over Europe. We've been everywhere. And our job is to carry the message of God to the world. We shouldn't waste that opportunity. That's the third commandment. Don't do it for no reason. You have this big sign on your back. Go represent yourself, represent the Jewish people, represent God, represent his message as delineated in the Torah. And it's such a privilege to do that. And it's so interesting, you know, if someone in the Jewish nation does something wrong, a big issue publicly, they blame all Jews. You know, we're in this together. We're carrying the name of God together. So then let's go and let's share the love and the wisdom and the insights and the morality and the goodness with the rest of the world. By the way, how, how empowering that is to make every day count. It's sometimes challenging. It's many times a lot of fun, too. I mean, enjoyment, it's great. And at the end of the day, it feels great to have represented God in this world. To be a special messenger of God, wow, that's like being an angel. That's great. We can look at this in a very narrow sense, which we, we started with by saying, of course, not to swear falsely, which is, I don't think, a superficial thing as well. It's, it's very important. The importance of MS, the importance of being truthful is a serious thing. And of course, you see it in court, in court that people do swear by the name of God. But there's maybe a deeper principle here, which is that if there's, a, if there's an idea, if there's a practice, if there's a power to the way that we serve God, and one of that ways is with truth, if we betray that truth, then it's as if we're taking God's name and doing something the opposite of what God represents. And we see this as, as well as the, in the Ibn Ezra that says that when we should, that we, a person mentions God's name, he is saying, God is true. So what I will say now is true. And if you don't keep your word, it's as if you're denying God in some way. You know, it's maybe even a little broader. Let's take the big principle of Kiddush Hashem which people translate in words that I don't know what it means, to sanctify the name of God. I don't know what that means. But let's take Chilo Hashem, the opposite. So these are like the biggest principles in the Torah, to bring people closer to God or to distance them from God. So if I'm God's representative, as is every Jewish person, and anyone else who chooses to be, and I do the right thing, and I do a good thing, and I do a caring thing, and a compassionate thing, and I stand up for truth, then I attract people to be closer to God. And if, God forbid, I do the opposite, if someone were to lie, were to bend the truth, were to cheat, were to be nasty, were to be filled with the opposite of love, hold back love, then they would cause chilah Hashem, a distance between those people around them and God. The connection between the Deber that we have just talked about and Kiddush Hashem and Chil Hashem, which you've just brought together, actually comes from Vayikra. It says, Velo sishavu So there's this intimate connection between swearing in God's name and Echilil and Kiddush Hashem. This is a big part of I think your work, Rebzil, a lot of people in the local, especially in Toronto, but, but many places around the world, you might be an association that first comes to mind when somebody thinks of a Jew. 
And that's a huge responsibility, as you just laid out. How do you handle that? And what does it mean to you to be that role in so many people's lives? Okay. (laughs) To me, it's pretty simple. I'm put here. That wasn't my decision. I'm put here for a short time. I know there's an expiry date. I know that this world's going to end for me at some point, as it does for all people. And I'd like to do what I'm supposed to do for the time that I'm here. So I look where God sends me. This is kind of my mission my whole life since I'm about 10 years old. And um, What happened at 10 years old? Well, when I was raised, um, my parents were just great. But both of them were the only observant members of their families. So my father's brothers and sister and nieces, nephews, and the whole broad family. At that point, no one was observant. My mother, right from the start, was the only observant one. So we were always the carrier of God's name to the family. We would then host people for a Seder, for a Shabbat meal, for a birthday party, for many things. And often we were ridiculed, you know, get with the times. And my parents just hung in there. And I caught this, you know, when I was 10, I kind of maybe grew up a bit earlier. I just caught this, and I loved that whole scene. Our house was the, you know, Grand Central Station for uh, Jewish observance. People would come in. We would have a Seder of 70 people. Um, Shabbat would go on for hours and hours, and we'd have guests every Shabbat and every Jewish holiday. And uh, I would run home from shul. My father would tell me, go home and tell my mother how many are coming for Shabbat lunch because he would survey the whole shul and see who needed a place. And, you know, well ahead of his time. That was like 1965. And um, and so we were the examples. You know, people would ask me questions and, uh, you know, uh, people in the house, people in the shul, people I got lifts home with from school. And they would ask me all kinds of questions and I found this to be very exhilarating, very empowering, meaning now I have to go learn the answers, give them over in a way that's sweet, and uh, um, made me study a lot and go see a lot of rabbis and rebbitsons and learn their Torah and how they explained all different things. And um, so what I do is I look at two things. One is what problems are there out there that I could possibly help fix in some way. And then I look at my phone every day. I turn it on after, in the morning I go to shul. I daven in a a very good shul. We daven slow. And it's much longer than most people can handle, but it's beautiful in a different world, a heavy morning meditation. Then I study my study partner, my morning study partner. We're in our 23rd year. He's an oncologist and we've covered all different uh, areas of Torah. And then afterwards, I turn on my phone and I see who asks me to do certain things. When I get back to the office, I turn on the computer who sent me a a message on Facebook or something saying, I need you to do this. Would you help me in this way or that way? And I realized, like, why did I get that call? And why me? And why do I notice that problem? And why do I perhaps have an ability to solve that particular problem? Then it must be that I'm supposed to do something about it. 
then I look, okay, God sent me to do that. I'll try and do that. And uh, at the end of a long day, I should be tired at night, but go to sleep knowing that I did my best to make a difference, to represent God in this world, to be his messenger. And uh, like my mentors in life and my parents and um, do whatever I can. It's a carrying people, this idea, when I first translated the Deber to not take God's name or what was the actual translation, yeah. carry, no, we, I said it, I said whatever swear. it said to swear falsely. Yeah. And this image of carrying is something totally different because it's almost like you're given a badge, the badge, you're a Jew, you have armor, there's a, you know, there's a visible, I feel that a lot as well being straddled in many different worlds with so many types of Jews and, and the whole, the rest of the world, not to mention that when I wear my kippah and my tzitzit, it's, I, I feel I am carrying God's name. I'm extra sensitive to the way that I look. If I'm looking sulkin or I'm having that sort of stern face looking aimlessly. Now, of course, nobody's going to be perfect. Nobody's expecting me to be beaming with light, but my responsibility in little actions really matter. People do associate, when I go somewhere, people do associate, you know, God, religion, uh, the Jewish people with my actions. And it's, it's exhilarating to feel significant. Sometimes it's maddening. It's nice, you know, to uh, be in quiet places sometimes, but it certainly feels like a great schus to be able to do something like that. And for you, it started uh, in the home that you, lived, that you grew up in which was, in a way, you were carrying the name of God within the broader family, and people were coming to you for all sorts of reasons where you started to feel very valuable as one of these people in carrying God's name. Is, is, I'm also aware that you have some mentors that I've been very interested in learning about. One of your per, uh, mentors that's in, sitting in an image right to your left is Lubavitcher Rebbe, as well as the amount of music that you've produced for Rab Shlomo, two of those people, I, I think, represented something that you found in your home. Do you see a relationship between the mentors that, and the people that you really have looked up to and the home you grew up in? Oh, uh, 100%. So I have some other mentors too. One just passed away this week, Mr. Kurt Rothschild, who I viewed as the greatest living Jew of this time right now. Um, a businessman in Toronto who spent the last 60 years working for the Jewish people exclusively. And he spent time with his family too, but just did not care about the material world, did not care about honor, ego, um, just cared about getting the job done. Again, he had his causes, and then he would see what things came to him. Uh, we, we worked together on eight projects, and he's been a mentor of mine for many years. And um, my father's very much a mentor, and also Reb Mordechai Machlis, my study partner in Israel, is my mentor on Ahavas Yisrael, Love for Another Jew. Rabbi Shalom Schwartz from the Aseret Dibrot Project is my mentor on Jewish activism. And I am really fortunate that since I'm a little kid, I understood that you got to have really good coaches if you want to be a good player to bring out the best talent. And I've always been coachable. 
whether it was in sports or music or whatever, I would find the best and have them be my role models and teachers. And I can't come up to any of their toes, none of them. But when I look up, their bar is set very high. And I said, you know what? I'll try to get as close to the bar as I can. And um, I'm very fortunate. All of those people had tremendous love for God's creations, tremendous love for their fellow Jews, tremendous self-sacrifice. None of them have any ego at all. That doesn't mean they don't have pride and drive and feel good about what they do, but they're, none of them are egocentric at all. They're just carrying. They are really representing the boss. And I have to mention, you know, I had the great merit, I, I don't know how and why, but of marrying a daughter of one of the great, greatest rabbis of the past generation. And he also just gave his entire life for the Jewish people. Again, zero ego, zero. And zero caring about the material world. It doesn't mean he wasn't normal. He had, you know, ate food and had a house, but none of that mattered. People offered him all kinds of gifts. He would send them back. He just wasn't interested in, in acquiring anything other than accomplishments of doing what God wants. And he had a mantra. I once asked him, how do you decide what to do and for whom? And he said, I just asked myself one question. Is what I'm being asked to do good for God or not? If this is good for God, Hashem will benefit from this, then I say yes. And so he worked like Mr. Rothschild, like the Lubavitcher Rebbe, like Shalom Schwartz, like Rabbi Machlis, for, like Shlomo Karbach, for people all across the spectrum of the world, for Jews and Gentiles, and for Jews from every walk of life, even competing walks of life, because they had so much love and caring, it just overtook anything else, and they took themselves out of the picture, so it was no block, but I don't feel I want to do that, or I'm too tired, or I need to go to work. They just found the ability to get all these things done for the benefit of others. It's staggering to watch and see what they did. And I'm trying in my own little way to see if I could be a little like them. Just to take away the mystery of it, uh, uh, whether it's the Lubavitcher Rebbe, Rabbi Hirschsprung, uh, Rav Shlomo, Rav Machlis, Rav Shalom, what are some things that we know that all of these people do uh, in their life that makes them like that? Okay, well, first of all, their main drive is the power of their soul to love. That is the main drive. That is our most powerful tool as a human being, and very often it's blocked. So to share love, which means to give, the Hebrew word for love is ava, and the root word is hav, to give, to give to others to be able to give whatever it is, advice, sometimes money, sometimes an ear, sometimes a hug, sometimes your heart, to try to feel what they feel. And um, this is not an easy thing to do because it means someone will feel a lot of pain from others, but they'll also feel a lot of joy. You know, when I go to a wedding, I try to feel what the bride and groom are feeling, what their parents are feeling, 
and if they still have grandparents, what their grandparents are feeling. And then I just, I'm not there for the chicken. I don't need the meal. I'm there to share the simcha because I feel what they feel. So that's one thing. They're all tremendously tuned into Torah as the, not just the information, but the fact that this is the way to get close to God. The author of the Torah has put himself in the Torah. So they spend so much time uh, um, studying and delving and asking and seeking and learning and the pleasure it gives them, but it gives them connection above all. They all spend time talking to God and praying, not just what's in the book, but their own personal prayers as well, all of them. They all are not hung up on the material and the physical world. None of these people sleep a lot or slept a lot, eat a lot or ate a lot, uh, took a lot of vacation time or any vacation time other than to rejuvenate themselves if they had to. Um, They didn't sleep a lot. They took care of their health, but these are not people who went to see movies and spent a lot of time in restaurants and, you know, on the beaches or the golf courses. Not that there's anything wrong with all that, but the people at the higher level understand that their greatest commodity for which there's a scarcity in their life is time. That hourglass is been turned over the day they're born, the moment they entered the world, the sand is going quickly. And the older you get, the quicker it rushes down to the other side. They want to make the most of every minute in life. And so my father-in-law once said this. He once said, if they ask me in the next world, when I leave this world, and he left almost 25 years ago, if they ask me why it wasn't better in matters between Me and God, I would say you're 100% right, I could have been better. But if they would ask me why I wasn't better between me and my fellow human beings, I'll say it's impossible. I couldn't have been better. No one ever asked me a favor to which I said no, and I couldn't have tried or worked any harder. Wow, I cannot say that, but wow, what a level to strive to, to, to be at. And... That's some of the things they all had in common. That doesn't mean they all didn't have time for family. They did and for their, you know, friends and to share simchas, but they were just on 24-7, on to respond to whatever someone else needed without concern for themselves personally. In Rav Ashlag in Kabbalah, that's actually been very popularized in the world, um, Bala Sulam, uh, Rav Mordechai Gottlieb, I believe his name is Avram Gottlieb, one of the biggest proponents, really breaks down that the highest levels of light to be received are through through becoming a giver. That we're meant to take the, I guess it's called um, uh, the ratzon lekabel, the will to receive and bring it into lahashpia to to give over. And it seems that people that are carrying God's name, even though it sounds like it's a very holy and spiritual and religious thing to 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 carry God's name. It's really the way that you've been relating it so far has been about how these people relate to other people in the world. Yeah, also, you got to know this. The more you give, the more you get. So at the 
the end of the year, you go, wow, you know, God, you gave me strength and you gave me some money and you gave me food and you gave me health and you gave me support. And I was able to do some good things and that feels pretty good. You know, what do I care what my golf score is? Well, you know, well, I don't golf, but if I did, I'd have to work hard to get to a low score. But how would I feel about that? All the time I spent in my life on that. So maybe I should spend a little less and spend more time giving, or maybe I should golf with people that need my time and my friendship. And so I could use that for mitzvah time as well. And, you know, everyone has to make their own determination what they need for their mental health and psychological well-being. Um, I happen not to need leisure. That's made me, gave me tremendous uh, inner strength to keep going. I don't have a great need to sleep. And I don't need to do a lot of leisure things. These are all great blessings. And um, I could spend time being on the mission. And it, it feels, it just feels good. Not that I have a lot of time to think about that, but I just feel good being on the mission. What's the mission? Well, let's solve the problems and let's help people wherever we can. Okay. For the average person... The idea, this mysterious nefesh, this self-sacrifice, it's it's scary. It's it's scary to think about for the average person that just can't relate to that level. Uh, maybe can understand it and appreciate it, but it feels very far. What are some ways that that the people down here, myself and others, that are struggling all the time to figure out? How much time do I need for myself? How much time do I need for others? You know, Rav Machlis, when I was doing the interview with him, okay, he's, he's basically in business, giving people Shabbos meals and doing his thing and teaching Torah 51, I believe, weeks of the year. One week was when he's with his family and they go away for Pesach and they don't tell people where they're going and that people find them, uh, they, they find him. But basically there's one week of the year that he says he shuts his door it's an open home concept. And that's all that it seems that he needs. But that, that seems to be on a, on a level that most people can't imagine. So h- how do we balance that? And how do we find that in a smaller way? So everyone has to be on their level. And your levels will change. You're young. You have little kids. You got to spend time with the kids. You have to help your wife. You have to make sure that you spend time with each other. You should have date night. I'm an old guy. You know, I spend tons of time with the grandkids, but I have very specific times and missions. You know, I'm teaching one guitar and we're building a stender, a lectern together and someone else I study Mishnah with and someone else I do all the school projects with them and others we just, I take out, you know, once a week for we talk about life and things. Um, But I would say this. First of all, let, let's just get some guidelines. So Rav Moshe Feinstein, Zatzal, the, great, the greatest halachic authority of the past generation, said just as someone is to give 10% of their disposable income, their after-tax earnings to tzedakah, they should try and give 10% of their waking hours to tzedakah, to charity, to give to others. Now break that down. There's many mitzvah. If you know someone who's sick, there's a mitzvah of Bikr Cholim to visit the sick. 
And today, there's many other ways of doing those mitzvot as well. We have the internet, the phone. So if they're far away, we can't get on a plane, but we could call them and tell them we care. The, um, there's a mitzvah, Nichom Avelim, to comfort those who are mourning. So we could spend time doing that. Um, just who do you know needs a helping hand? You know, there's so many lonely people today, lonely people. The Torah only two times uses the expression low tov, it's not good. Only two times, and both relate to loneliness. And it's not good, loneliness is not a good thing. So could we have a coffee with someone? That's a good use of that 10% of the time. Could we take someone for a walk? Could we invite someone over? And the things that we do for our own families, like Shabbat meals, so some of the Shabbat meals, there are different systems uh, that people use. Some of the Shabbat meals, we have guests and we share, and it's a great model for the children. It's a great model for everyone to be together to do. We we can't be Rabbi Machlis. He's not the regular. He's the unbelievable exemplary you know, that has up to 350 Shabbat guests meals on a Shabbat. That's the most I ever saw there on a weekend. But that's not regular, and he does it already for almost 40 years. Okay, so he's exemplary, but we can all learn from that. So we could all take some meals, a Pesach Seder. You want to have one for your family, but there are two Seders out here in the diaspora. So, um, and we start with little things. So Maimonides has a beautiful principle. If you're going to give $100 to charity, is it better to cut one check or one e-transfer of $100 or to give $1 100 times? Same amount of money. And he says give the $1 100 times because then we're training ourselves to be givers. So this is one thing we do in our family. We have a series of charity boxes for the things that we view as critical to support. Um, and every morning, you know, I put in a series of coins every morning. My wife puts in a series of coins every morning. Then I go to shul. I give a series of charity there. So by the time I finished the morning davening, let's say I gave charity 10 times that day already. Now I'm in the groove of giving already. And I have one other thing. It's a little thing. I try to do someone a favor before I go to shul in the morning, either on the phone or on the computer or shul to help someone who needs to fill in or to open the door, to get someone a sitter, just so I know I'm beginning that groove right away. I call it the mitzvah groove. You get in the groove, you know? Um, otherwise, tendency could be to be self-focused. So what we want to do is just get in the groove, and it's a bunch of little things. And by the way, that's all of life. It's the painting of life is a brush series of brush strokes that make this beautiful portrait. And we just got to take these little things so you grab time. And I have one other thing to say, which is wherever I go, I look for this opportunity, and I have many, many stories about this. So we're, every year we rent a summer home for a week to be together with the children and grandchildren, and they're all invited. And I always look for some mitzvah when I'm out there. My main mitzvah is to spend time uh, uh, encouraging and supporting my children and spending time directing. I make a little agenda notes. For each grandkid, we spend a little time individually and as a group, and it's trying to teach certain things. 
But I look for opportunities in the cottage town we're at in this part of Ontario. Do I find a Jew who needs something? Do I, whatever it is. And I have many stories on what we found over time. You know, people would stop my car because there was a Jewish bumper sticker on it. Um, People would see me wear a kippah. People would come up and say, wow, you're up here. I see uh, you're observant. Uh, is there any kosher food in the area? What do you do? And we've invited people for Shabbos in Aruba. We went to uh, the Chabad guy there, and we he was in one end of Aruba. We were in a different end of Aruba, and I said, just tell me all the Jews you know at my end. I have this big six-bedroom home that we rented. Send us all your guests. So I didn't go to Aruba knowing I would have any mitzvot to do, but we ended up meeting... I don't know, at least 50 different Jews there. And we had a great time, you know, just being in Aruba and relaxing a little and rejuvenating. But we did find a mitzvah opportunity with at least 50 other Jews in a Dutch island off the coast of Venezuela. So if you look for opportunities, then Hashem sends you whatever you need. And you say, God, I'd like an opportunity here. Okay. And then you just keep your eyes open. But it's all about little things. And that becomes big things. You don't have to head organizations or have 300 guests on a Shabbat. That's for the unusual, for the, you know, the leader group, the specific group. But we all could make a little difference here and there. And look at your neighbors, your place of work. Wherever you are, just find the opportunity. Someone drops something at the supermarket. You run to pick it up. You just made a Kiddush Hashem. Wow. From that little activity, which took about four or five or eight seconds... You just made a huge kiddush Hashem, huge. And it's it's funny how uh, subconscious it can be at times. People run into you, you have a kippah. I find that sometimes it's a magnet for questions, for for deeper. There is associations uh, between the symbols that people see and the questions that they have and the way that they relate to you. And so I wonder. I'm sure you've had many very interesting people come up to you and have lots of conversations. I have tons of stories. My best stories actually are either on airplanes or hospitals. Um, and once you're wearing a kippah, that's it. You're representing God. So they come up and they ask questions, they ask for blessing, they, uh, Jews and non-Jews alike. And um, if we're nice and we're appreciative and we show some sensitivity and respect, even in the way we drive, you know, I try to let people in. People, you know, want to get into the main street. I try to let people in, you know. There's there's no moment too small for, for these No, no, it's great. It's a bunch of little things. Not only that, it's nice to be in the giving grooves. Sharing love is a good thing. It feels good. This is a good thing. It's not nearly as difficult as one thinks. Just one has to get in that mode. Um, you know, I can't do Rabbi Machlis when he walks down the street, says hello to every single person. It's a mitzvah to say, say shalom at least. Um, it's a directive. I can't say I say to everyone, but I try to say hello to many people, and it just makes for a sweeter, nicer world. Why not? Last few couple questions here. Are there any stories, I want to get into some of the stories that you feel are the most meaningful for you in this area, any ones that pop out. Um, any, any times that you feel you missed the mark where you, you've thought, Oh, wow. I had an opportunity there. I didn't take it. Something like that in the realm of Kiddush Hashem. Yeah, tons of times, especially if I'm really busy or, you know, I'm a pretty focused person. So I'm trying to get from A to B 
and an opportunity will come and I just, you know, say, oh, I don't have time or I'm too tired sometimes. So there are many times, but I try to identify that and uh, not miss that opportunity again in the future. Um, so I'll give you an example. I, I spend Fridays for the last many years in a big hospital here in Toronto as a volunteer chaplain and member of the Jewish volunteer services. And, you know, this past Friday, there were 55 people in the hospital. So I can't, I don't have time to visit 55 people. That's, imagine we spend, you know, five minutes, plus you have to go from room to room, and sometimes you have to spend 20 minutes. So that would take like more than the time that I have. So I try to triage the opportunity. And, you know, I know how to read the lists to see where I ought to be. And um, then I also let God do his thing, by the way, because sometimes it happens to me all the time. Someone stops me. Oh, oh, do you have this or this or this? Or, wow, some of the people, you know, my mom's in emergency over here. Can you come and see her? And I say, well, Hashem sent me over there. And that happens to me all the time. But lots of times I say, oh, you know, I just ran out of gas. I, I can barely move. I got to get home ready for Shabbat. But I really should have seen those few people. So then I could go back on Sunday and do that. Or next week, put them on the top of the list. Instead of triaging at the bottom, I should have gone to see that group. Or get another volunteer. You know, I could still help deal with that issue and say, hey, guys, when you go in on Sunday, make sure you visit the following five people. Tell us about one of the more meaningful experiences recently that you've had in carrying this mantle or trying to carry this mantle. Well, I'll tell you the most recent from just a few or hours ago. Or historical one, whatever you want. <laughs> so I have a million stories, but we don't have a million hours. I think I put down about 200 pages of these so far and typed uh, different stories out there from the street. Um, I did it to share this with my grandchildren, most of all. And, you know, I don't know, you know, how long I'll be here, and I don't know what my memory will be like. So I gave them a series of collected stories. I'm working on the next volume. Um, but um, a week ago, I went to hear a, a shir, a class on Shabbat afternoon, I go to hear a very brilliant uh, and in-depth and unusual uh, Pirkei Avos share. And when I finished Mincha, I turned, I, I usually go home and study a certain uh, Sefer, a certain Jewish book every week at that point, certain deep learning. And uh, there was someone waiting to speak to me, and he said his children were very troubled because... They uh, attended an event, and the, some of the Jewish kids from their school were very nasty to Jewish kids from another school, which was a different, uh, um, I don't know what you call it, method of practicing Judaism and serving God. And he was very troubled that this went on with his daughter's friends and that she had picked it up in school. And so I thought about it for the whole week, and this week, at that same time slot, I went to their house unannounced. And I said, could I speak to the daughter, please? And we sat 
I don't know, maybe an hour, hour and a half. We just went through that, why people hate, and the Yetzirah, the drive to be self-focused, Gaiva, which I view as the root of all evil, I, I, I. You know, we live in an I era, iPhone, iPad, I want, I will, I don't, <laughs> you know, it's all about I and to how to move that away and to begin to think of others and the 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 need to say what's good for God and to see how to use love. And even if you disagree with someone, so what? You don't even know them, you know, so you have a different viewpoint. Maybe you should spend a lot of time learning to love them. Well, that was just a story from today. But, you know, I have just so many stories from... Uh, all right, I'll give you a fast one. The <laughs> uh, It was that year was Tisha B'Av, uh, the most solemn, serious, somewhat sad day of the year. And it's a long fast day, and it's in the summer. It was a hot day. But before Tisha B'Av was over, I had to get on a plane and fly to Minneapolis. And that's because... I was going to take a, a young man on a, a trip called Inward Bound, which is a, a program from Rabbi Moshe Kazowitz out there. And we're get, you go up to the Boundary Waters where Canada meets the United States. We call it Quetico National Reserve. We're going to spend a week uh, in canoeing this group. And in order for me to get to there and make it for the next morning, I had to be in Minneapolis. So... That made it even more arduous because I'm traveling west, so the day ends much later. So I would end my fast maybe 11.30 or 12 at night in Toronto time. And uh, my luck, I get the back row of the plane, the middle seat. There could be nothing worse than that, right? On a hot day, I'm fasting. I've been fasting for like 24 hours already, and it's boiling. And that was the day of a big car race in Toronto, the Molson Indy. And in the plane of Minneapolis stops at Indianapolis, which is the racing capital. So tons of the drivers and TV crews and the uh, uh, the pit crews were on our plane. Now, at the end of a race, they're pretty rowdy. So one guy gets on and a real loud voice says, where's the alcohol? And I go, God, I sure hope he doesn't sit next to me. Okay, what do you think happened? Well... Right next to me, there's an empty seat. The back row, the window seat, sits this guy. And I go, oh, God, how could you do that to me? But okay. To my right was the Japanese uh, race car driver. To my left was this really loud, brash guy. And uh, I said, hi, what's your name? He tells me his name. And I said, and where are you going? He says, Indianapolis. And so what were you here for? He says, well... I'm the with the ABC TV crew. Uh, I'm the producer of the show. And um, I said, well, it's interesting because your name sounds Jewish. He says, well, I am Jewish. And he says to me, what book are you reading? Well, I said, do you know what today is? He says, yeah, it's Sunday, July, whatever. I go, no, no, on the Jewish calendar, it's the saddest day of the year. He said, I never heard of it. Well, we spent the entire time till we got to Indianapolis talking all about the Jewish people and the state of the Jewish people in Tishabov. And he told me all the anti-Semitism that he had to deal with, particularly from a race team 
that was headed by uh, a Palestinian and how they wouldn't let him even interview anyone in the race team. Pretty famous race team, by the way. And wow, I said, Hashem, this is unbelievable what you did to me. You know, and the time just went by very fast and very meaningful. And I forgot even that I was hungry and tired and thirsty. And that was really great. And I have one other really good story to share with you. So my mother's yurt site, the date of her passing, is 12 days before Rosh Hashanah, and she's buried in Israel. And I do Rosh Hashanah here at the place I hang out called the Village Shul, which is a whole outreach center. And Rabbi Shlomo Schwartz is one of the founders of it. And I was in there pretty early uh, at the beginning, so I've been there for about 30 years. It's a very wonderful place in Forest Hill in Toronto. But I went to Israel to for my mother's yurt site, the anniversary of her passing, to say prayers at her grave, to light a candle, to be with my sisters who live in Israel. And um, I'm in the groove, ready for Rosh Hashanah. I'm serious, I'm focused, spent a lot of time at the Kotel in prayer, a lot of time studying with Rabbi Maklis. I'm ready. I'm in the airport, ready to go back to Toronto. I'm studying the Netivot Shalom, the Nesiva Shalom, by the Slonim Rebbe on Rosh Hashanah. And everybody turns around. And um, I go, well, what's everyone looking at? So I turned around too. And there was uh, an Israeli supermodel. Supermodels don't look like regular people. They're made up. They're carrying flowers. They're dressed really fancy. Jewelry's really fancy. They don't look regular. And they sure don't look like they're ready for a long overseas flight. So I said... Hashem, keep me focused here. Help me. I don't want to look at this woman and be distracted or attracted. So I just want to stay focused on being ready for Rosh Hashanah. It's just a couple of days away. And so I get on the Air Canada plane, and then I'm in the front row. And it's great because the seat next to me is empty, so I'm going to be able to spread out. And this is phenomenal. I'll be able to study and sleep, and I'll come back rested, ready for Rosh Hashanah because I want to work hard on Rosh Hashanah and not be tired, and a long flight could tire you out. And thankfully, she doesn't get on. I assume she's in first class and I'm in regular class, and then she gets on the plane. And I said, oh, God, just make sure she doesn't sit next to me. And she sits right next to me. I go, oh, no, this is terrible. First of all, she's dressed in a very skimpy dress. I think we would call that a dish towel in the regular world. And she sits right next to me, and I say, hello. And I go, oh, no, what am I going to do about this? I said, aren't you cold? She said, yeah, I'm freezing on the plane. I go, great. Stewardess, can I get a blanket? I get her a blanket. I get one for me, too. Now she covers up from head to toe. I said, what's your name? She tells me. And I said, and what brings you to Israel? She said, well, I live in Vancouver. I'm working there as a model and an actress. And there are not a lot of Jewish men. So I have a boyfriend. He's Italian Catholic. And he asked me to marry him. And I'm not getting younger. You know, time ticks. I want to have a family with children. And so why did you go to Israel, I asked. And she said, well, I wanted to go to my grandparents' grave. She's a Sephardic Jew, and Sephardic Jews have a deep connection to where they came from and to God, and I wanted to ask them for a sign if I was doing the right thing. I said, wow, you asked them for a sign? <laughs> and I said, 
her name, which I can't say here. I said, let's call her name for this conversation, Jenny. I said, Jenny, I'm your sign. For the next seven hours, we just spoke about being Jewish and what's life about. I said, Jenny, I'm going to give you the name of my friends who are the rabbis in Vancouver. You call them anytime, just say, I spoke to you. Here's my number. Anytime you need me, just call me. I look up at Hashem and I said, wow, wow, look at this. You took the supermodel, made her into a sweet, confused Jewish girl who just needed a little friend and a help. I don't know why you chose me, but I'm so touched and privileged and honored that you chose me. And thank you so much for the opportunity. And I went home ready for Rosh Hashanah. And so did she. All of these stories, not interesting, just that they're on airplanes. I feel like it's a really interesting metaphor of, of life. You get, you're, you're put into the place that you're put into and you have these opportunities around you. And on an airplane, it's very, very localized. There's somebody right beside you. Um, is there any epilogue to any of these stories? Any time anyone gets back to you that you know where, the, where it went? Um, sure. Sorry to, sorry to push you for one more. No, thing. no, that's I'm okay. just curious. Usually I don't, but I'll, I'll tell you a story. Not that it, that it takes away from the story. A number of years ago... So first of all, in Toronto, I'm aware that I see the people again. A person going to Indianapolis or Vancouver, if they contact me, I'm there for them. And if not, you know, I guess I was just there for the moment. That's okay, too. Um, one year, my wife lost a parent. And uh, not too long before Pesach. And she felt she didn't have the inner strength to go through all the work of preparing the house, preparing the food, changing to the Pesach dishes and materials, hosting all the people. And she said, I'd like to go away. And we never go away for Pesach. So, well, we, we never go away except when my parents brought us to Israel for many years. But usually we host ever since then. I discussed it with my rabbi. And he said, let me speak to your wife. And he called me up and he said... I'm not telling you you could go away. I'm telling you you must go away. Your wife really needs a break. The passing of her parents hit her very, very strongly. Go away. So I went away, and uh, I walked into this hotel in the Catskill Mountains where we booked Pesach. And as I walked in, someone said, You, you changed my life. And I said, You. I have no idea who you are. <laughs> I think you have the wrong person. And he said, you don't remember, but I remember. I said, well, tell me what it was. I don't remember. I'm blessed with a poor memory, by the way. So I never really remember what happened. So I was invited to a school in Riverdale, New York, called SAR, a super cool school, to do a weekend for students. And the theme of the weekend was Shabbat, and he was one of the students. And he wasn't from an um, observant background, and he was so touched by the Shabbos experience, all the classes, you know, whatever, I don't remember the stories I said, whatever I said, whatever we did, and, you know, we spent a whole Shabbos together, a group of kids, he went home, and uh, he told his parents, you know, I want to keep Shabbat, and they said, yeah, sure, yeah, we'll see. Because in their family, Friday night, they would eat dinner and then all go to a movie. Every Friday night was family movie night. So it came next Friday night. They have their quick dinner. Not a Shabbat dinner, just a quick dinner. 
they're all ready to go to the movie. And he says, I'm not going to the movie. I said, you're not going to the movie? He said, no, I told you last week. I want to keep Shabbat. You sent me to this weekend. I want to do Shabbat. He said, okay, well, listen, we're family. we got to stick together. If you're going to stick here, fine. Well, tonight we'll do Shabbat. They bring out some grape juice and some challah, and they <laughs> sit down again, and now they have a little bigger meal. The rest, I guess, maybe some popcorn or whatever. And the next weekend... He said, I'm not going again. So they did Shabbat together, and then they did Shabbat together, and they did, the whole family did that. And they began to be Shabbat observant. And at the end of that school year, he told his parents, and next year, I'm not going back to public school. I'm going to a Jewish school. They said, well, if you're going to bring Shabbat here, we might as well learn what it's about. If we're going to send you to a Jewish school, you're going to come home and teach us. And he said, that's what you did. And I said, yikes, I'm not taking any credit. I worked for a weekend. You did all the work. I'm happy I could help you a little as a coach, but you played the game, man. And so that's just one of like a billion examples. But I don't, I don't have like an agenda at a certain end game. My goal is right now to see what I could do. And uh, if I could help someone in a hospital, I do a lot of funeral for lonely people. Uh, I do a lot of teaching, you know. Chauffeur blowing. Chauffeur blowing in people's homes, which has been one of the greatest experiences of my life since I'm 13 years old. I got a chauffeur when I, for my bar mitzvah. My, I'm born on Rosh Hashanah. So, so I got a chauffeur about a month before. I went to a chauffeur blower. He taught me how to blow it. I blew for a sick person that year. And ever since then, I blow for people who can't come to shul for one of many reasons. Maybe a good thing happened. They gave birth. Many people are ill or elderly. Some feel they have to go to work. So I blow for them, and it's one of the greatest experiences. I have tons and tons of stories what came out of that. During COVID, so we blew, um, I want to say, in 15 parks, different parks, and we would publicize, and people would come to the park because they were didn't want to go indoors, and we would blow for hundreds and thousands of people in total in parks. It was really cool. We would speak a little say some brachas, say one or two prayers, and blow the chauffeur in a park. And I have many, many stories about that. It would take way too long. But the key current that connects all of it is really, of course, not just, not only, but this debear, this idea of carrying God's name with you wherever you go and looking at yourself in the world as having something to do in each of these moments. Hey, God sent me here, right? I, I'm not here to have fun. But you're having, but it sounds like you have a lot of fun. Oh, no, no. You have to separate the word fun. There's no Hebrew word for fun. They use kef, which is an Arabic word. We have simcha, which is joy. We have sason. We have, we have lots of words to, for feeling really great and happy and wonderful. That's how I feel. That's great. I hope you hear that in my voice. But that's different than I did it just for fun, you know? And, you know, I'll take my grandkids to go see one of those minion movies i thought it was about shul you know i didn't realize it was little little yellow guys like bananas you know but yeah i'll do that with them once in a while but more often than not much more often than not we're on a mitzvah mission and i'd like children and grandchildren to come on the mission with me as well and they find how they feel good i want to mention just one thing on that i tried to go to the parents of bar mitzvah boys and bat mitzvah girls in our shul give them the following idea 
when they get all their bar mitzvah and bat mitzvah money, which they don't understand even what money is, but they get all these gifts from relatives and friends, take 10% and set it aside for charity. Then gather a series of charities that you know, get their brochures and their websites and sit down with the children, now they're adults, young adults, and go through and say, we'd like to give charity and pick two or three or four. Now, leave the last pages of their photo albums empty. Once they pick the charity, then go and get one of these big checks made at Staples. They'll blow up the check to make it look, you know, 20 times bigger. And go with them and have them deliver the check to whatever the charities are. Handicapped children, needy, the Jews of the Ukraine, whatever the issues are that they chose from the list that you presented to them and take a picture of them presenting it and put those in as the last pages of their bar and bat mitzvah albums. That will be a life-changing moment for them. They'll learn how to give and they'll remember that forever. And they'll learn the good feeling of giving. And if the recipient charity gets it, they'll give them you know, t-shirts and letters and all kinds of things that make them feel really good that they were a supporter. So that's just one idea for tonight. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing these stories and for helping us understand the third D-Bear a little better. My pleasure. And that's all for today. Thanks for taking the time to listen, and we hope this episode has, in some small way, enriched your understanding of yourself, others, and God as you learn to integrate the Big Ten into your life. Please don't forget to subscribe wherever you are listening.